My name is James Tippins, and I am the pastor, elder, teacher of Grace Truth Baptist Church in Claxton, Georgia, which is part of the coastal empire of the Savannah and Low Country. Uh, born and raised there, have been all over the world, or excuse me, all over the states, uh, pastoring for 21 years. And um, I've got a lot of things that I could tell you about me, but it's not necessarily important nor uh, essential to the task that we have here today. And so with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we begin. Father, there is no way possible that I could handle the task that has been given to me. Lord, there is nothing that I can do to explicitly cause people to understand and comprehend the vastness of the gospel of grace. Father, there is no way that there is anything within my flesh that could please you in the teaching of these things. So God, for that reason... I pray that you would do all that you can do and all that you will do to wreck me and to move me away, that I might be a mouth for you, that your word may speak fully and authoritatively, and God, by the Spirit, that you would draw your sheep to yourself and be glorified and praised in the salvation of the elect. And we pray that this conference, God, would be a beginning point of clarifying and explicitly pruning the, 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 just the convolution of verbiage that we have so abused throughout the centuries. And I pray that we would have an explicit gospel, a particular gospel, a, a streamlined and obvious gospel that is all of you and all of grace and all of Christ. And it is in His name that we pray these things. Amen. What is the gospel? I could take literally uh, the next 20 years and deal with this question, what is the gospel? As Brother Scott has mentioned, we have the question at the table of trying to help us understand the, con the, the conflation of the work of God in redemption and the essence of how the apostles teach the New Testament body of Christ as they gather, aka the church or the gathering of Christians as we grow into maturity, as we relate to one another relationally, as we worship God and love Him intimately, these things that we are instructed to do have become blurred and have crossed over from the days of Constantine, from the days of Romanism, have crossed over in the evangelical cults of our culture and have confused the gospel. So much so that many people have come to be unable to answer the question, what is the gospel? I ask that question often. I ask people to give me a, their understanding of the gospel with just a few short sentences, and they usually say something like this, well, Jesus died for all sinners, which is wrong. It's an incorrect statement, so much so that it's blasphemous to say that. And we'll talk about that by the Lord's grace tomorrow. Some people would say, well, I'm a Christian and, and, and God gave me an option to be saved, which is blasphemous. That is not the gospel. It's not a good news that we might do something to pick out of the grab bag of Santa's snacks and pull out Christ. Some people would say, well, I know that I'm, I'm a Christian. The gospel is that I accepted Jesus into my heart. There's nowhere found in Scripture that would give that prescription whatsoever. And... The list goes on and on. Many people say, well, God loves all people and God loved the world and He killed His Son that we all might have eternal life. From universalism to Pelagianism to everything in between, we have got a mess. We have a mess in our culture. We're a, do a dominant portion of our 
uh, citizenry say that they believe in the God of the Bible, but so few of them can articulate the simplest expression of what the good news of Christ is and what is it that makes it good. And so I have labored over this for months and months and months. And now that I know that this is what I was going to be teaching just a few weeks ago, I'm like, oh no, now this is on my lap. I've got to say this. But I do not trust in that which I can do, but I trust in what God's Word can do. And we would be far better for me to read several things out of Scripture and then just pack it up and pray that God would do more in the reading of His Word than He could do with my commentary or with my study. But by the Lord's grace, He's also given us the opportunity and told us as we gather as the body, as we gather as the saints, that we can learn. And so that's hopefully what we will do today. I've considered 1 Corinthians 15 where it says of much importance, Paul would say and, and paraphrase that Christ, according to the Scriptures, was crucified and was buried according to the Scriptures and was raised to life. This is of utmost and first and priority, preeminent importance. And some people say, well, that's the gospel. It's just the story historically of Jesus. That's what the gospel is, that Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. Hallelujah. Well, of course, the gospel is contained within the history of what Christ did, but the gospel is not explicitly expressed in the historicity of Christ. We cannot come to say, well, we know Christ is, and Christ did, believe, did live, and Christ is Messiah, as many would confess in John's gospel, in John 7 and in John 12, that Christ is indeed Messiah. But confessing that with one's mind and even with one's mouth does not make one a child of God. There is no good news in the magic words of witchery. Oh, I said the right thing, so therefore I am indeed saved. That is not good news. That is blasphemous also. So what is the gospel? Well, I start, I want to recite Psalm 130. Listen to the words of the psalmist. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there with you is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord and my soul waits and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. And this is the beginnings of our understanding of what the gospel is. And in a nutshell, we could say that what's most important about our time this weekend is that we need to recognize that the gospel is the finished work of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, whereby sins and through which sins are forgiven for God's people. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is good news, beloved. But even saying that to you and saying that to those who would listen to this, it is still confusing because we bring with us hundreds of years of tradition, hundreds of years of, of misconception, hundreds of years of evangelicalism that would con confuse and convolate the, the truth of Christ. So I've chosen this day by the Lord's grace to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Of course, we know that the gospel is, in literal sense, 
the God speak, the God spell, the word and the teaching of God, which is the good news, the evangelon of Christ. But what is this good news? Listen to chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 11. I will read down through verse 21, and then we will pick up in verse 18 when I begin to teach. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once did regard Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, look and see, the new has come and is here. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. So we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I think this encapsulates the essence of the necessity of what the gospel is. Many people would argue even outside the veil of what I've already illustrated about false gospels and false ideals and understandings and expressions of the gospel. The gospel is not the not gospel. We live in a world today where everyone is telling what is not the gospel, but no one is telling what is the gospel. We find people that their whole banner of ministry is that I will say everything that is wrong with the world and nothing that is right. It is like telling someone to study for their final examination that they may get the licensure to move on to their career. But I will tell you what is not on the test. I will tell you all the things that are the wrong answer. But never will I teach you the truth. Brothers and sisters, we must teach the truth of Christ for God to call His people to Himself that they are reconciled to Him by faith in the finished work of Christ. And if we look at this text and we think about it, and we see what is at the core of the gospel, we see Paul telling to the church of Ephesus, it is to the praise of your glorious grace, beloved. We have been what? Saved. We have been redeemed. We have been forgiven of our sins. We have been purchased We have been elected. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world. We have been adopted. We have been grafted. We have been uh, grabbed. We've been snatched out of darkness and transferred to light. All these actions and all these words and all the outcome of the work of God, which is good news for God's people, is that He is praised and glorified, but that in itself is not the end of the gospel. It is not the point of the gospel in its core. The point of the gospel in its core is the character and the nature of God. And that's what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 5. Because if you look at this word, and you know 
there is this fear of the Lord and this persuasion by the apostles and that we are known by God. Jesus says that in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and the Son whom you have sent. The trouble that we have is in the pulpits of our day. We do not have gospel teaching. We do not have the Word of God going forth. We have caricatures of a God that is not known to Scripture. We have caricatures of a false Jesus, a false Christ, a false Redeemer. So the language is very close, but the reality behind that language is very, very ambiguous and wrong. I say often, words can never be heresy. Words cannot be heresy. If someone says sanctification, it cannot be heresy. If someone says progressive sanctification, it cannot be heresy. What is it that they mean by this? And therein do we find heresy, the meaning through which people speak. What is it that's behind it? What has ignited the fuse of the explosion of what they're trying to say with the words that they use? Friends, I will say to you that I, that I suspect that very few people even consider the meaning of the words they use. It is just mere lip service off the off the tongue in our day. Evidenced by the fact that we did not have to rent large spaces for such a conference. Many people are not concerned with that because they are settled in their own mind that the definition that they have for the gospel of grace is enough for them. And by all means, everyone's a Christian in the South. If you don't believe me, ask them. They'll tell you, I am surely in Christ. And then they will say, nothing of the such that gives them that assurance. Oh, but there is a great problem when it comes to the purposes of our gathering this week. Is that there are many people who have now taken Christ and added Him just sort of like a, a doorway, just a passageway, just a star to point the direction of our walking, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And the calling is the beckoning, the overarching, they would say, universal call of God that all would come to faith. After all, does He not say that He desires all to come to repentance? There's an abuse of the use of Scripture, just like there was in Paul's day. Just like Paul will say or has said in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not twist the Scripture, but by boldly proclaiming the truth, we bear our conscience before you and before God. And if our gospel is veiled, it is only veiled to those who are perishing. For the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbeliever to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ. But God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we have this treasure in jars of clay that it may be seen that the all-surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, this is the point I'm making. This is the point that Paul leads up to in this text about the illustration and the, this, the great exposition of the gospel. It is about the nature and the character of God. God. Holy. The word holy, hagios in the Greek, is to be set apart. That means it is different. If I open up a bag of cookies in my house, I have five children. If I open up a bag of cookies in my house or a box of donuts and I want one that's untainted, oh, I holy that thing. I sanctify that thing very quickly. I move it out of the box and I put it over on a napkin and I shove it in a plate and I put it up. I'm not even going to put it in the microwave and just hide it. For if I do not set it apart from my use, it shall surely either be spat upon, touched with nastiness, or consumed without my awareness. Being set apart is what God is. He is set apart so far beyond this reality that we call life. 
is because He, with the word of His power, spoke it into being. He said, let there be, and the universe was. He said, let there be, and there was a light. He created everything in order that His nature, the intrinsic worthiness of God, is that He set apart from all things. It's as if I were to create something with my hands this day on paper and say that I'm a part of the very illustration that I drew. How insane would I need to be apprehended and put into some type of institution if I thought that I was part of that which I drew. And how more insane would it be if that drawing spoke to me and told me how it was going to relate to me. I'm not a sculptor, but I can make a snake out of Plato, and I've done many. If that thing came to life and told me that it would not subject itself to its created purpose, I would roll it up into a ball and step on it. And I would not be maniacal for doing so. I am set apart from that which I make. I own it, much like my children, and they disagree. I own them until they leave. And in some sense, uh, people say, well, that's a little harsh. Well, I don't treat them harshly in that way, but I make sure they understand just how harsh it could be if we were still under the Jewish law. None of them would have made it past ten. Neither would have I. (laughs) But the creation... Is not God is not part of His creation. God is set apart. That's what holiness means. God is sanctified. And so in order for us to relate to God, He must sanctify us. And this is why we call the work of Christ and the work of God gospel. It is what God has taught us, and it is good, and it is the work that He has finished. And this is the gospel, is that the justice And the intimacy of God within Himself in His righteousness is at stake. Because He created the world and He created humanity and He purposed their sin that He might be the just and the justifier of all who have faith in Christ. And He might be the judge of those who deserve death who are not in Christ. Now this is such a foreign truth that... When these things are preached, people get angry with me. That is not the God that I know. Well, friends, those who say that do not know the God of Scripture. And those who say that are not born of God. Because you cannot deny the truth of God's revelation. You cannot deny the words of Christ and say that you believe Him. So what is it that we learn about the nature of the gospel here? The gospel is not an offer. The gospel is not an opportunity. The gospel is not even an obligation. The gospel is not an opinion. It's not an option that we choose from. It's not a picture. It's not an example that we are to follow. Many people say, well, Christ is the example. If Christ is the example, He's a sorry example. Follow me as I die. For what? Christ died for something. And the gospel starts with the nature of God and His righteousness and His justice and His wrath on evil. And and that's what we learn here. Even if we were to go to 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. See how easy it is to look over that? But as the beloved in Christ, we see that. And what comes to our mind is not that Christ died. He's not a martyr. 
He didn't lay down his life so that he could do something amazing to prove a point. He didn't set himself on fire to start a revolution. He did not come to the place where he wanted to prove his love and so therefore sacrificed himself so that we would know how much he loved us. No, as a matter of fact, Christ would have been a terrible savior had that been true. He'd been a better leader had he lived and led a revolution. But he did not come to lead a revolution. He came to save a people for himself. And he came to do so. And the reason that he died is because of sin. So the core of the gospel is the response to the sin of humanity. And moreover, and more explicitly, the sin of God's chosen people. The gospel is a full, effectual, finished work that God decreed, that God established, that God finished, and that God secures. That's the gospel. And when we add to the gospel by saying, Oh, I know that I'm a believer because look at my life. We mock the cross. We mock the cross. Many people say, well, well, I know I'm a Christian because I stopped cussing, I stopped drinking. And I stopped running around after crazy women that drink and cuss. And I go to church every day and I serve the Lord and I'm a pastor and I'm in the seminary and I give money to the poor and I do this and I do that and I, and I love my neighbor and I take in puppies and I haven't stoned my children. And the list could go on and on and on and... Where is that? Not only is it not in the doctrine of Scripture, not only is it not in the theological doctrine of the apostles, not only is it not in the example and the teaching of Christ, it is not even in the narrative of Scripture. As a matter of fact, the only place we see any recollection of such an expression is when Jesus uses that as a story, that there is the Pharisee who stands and gives God credit and glory for all of the goodness that He has worked in him. I thank you, God, oh God, for working in me that I'm not like that sinner over there. And the sinner beats his chest and tears his clothes and looks to the ground. And says, oh God, you want some Greek? Propitiate for me. Have mercy on me. Satisfy your wrath for me. And Jesus says, this man is justified. What does that mean? He's a law keeper. <laughs> the publican that robbed his own people, that tore his clothes and ran a long ways away from the religious legalist, cried out for mercy. That's why I started with Psalm 130. He cried out for mercy. He cried out for mercy. He said, oh God, propitiate for me. Satisfy your wrath on my behalf. And Jesus says, that is the law keeper. The Pharisee is condemned as a lawbreaker. What? Unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees, you shall not inherit the kingdom of life of God. But Jesus says that the Pharisees were lawbreakers and that the sinner was a law keeper. That's what the word justified means. I keep the law perfectly. Wow. It's a finished work. It is the good news. It is the power of God. Paul, Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is, what is the gospel, the good news of Christ, the finished work of Christ, the person of Christ, the effectuality, the efficacy of what Christ did is the power of God unto salvation so that everything that God has done for salvation is complete and 
fully effective in Christ. This is what we preach to the lost. This is the only message that brings the sheep to Christ because it is the only words that ring true in the regenerate heart. If someone were to ring a bell at one o'clock and say, hey, dinner's coming, come get the hog slop, none of us are running. We smell manure. Dinner time, ding, ding, ding. We're not going to pay attention to that smell. We're not going to pay attention to that bell. We may get our tent. We go, that's not what I eat. And that is what the false gospels and the conditional gospels and the weak gospels and the work-based gospels and the false assurance gospels and all the other types of gospels which Paul says in Galatians is no gospel at all. That's what it is. It's a big box of dung and it's a dinner bell being rung and the world... Not God's people run to it and flock to it like flies. Because that's what a fly wants. is a pile of dung. But a sheep wants to eat the green pastures of the true and precious grace of God. This presupposes, the gospel presupposes the sinfulness of man. Romans 3. I thought about preaching out of Romans 3, but everybody preaches out of Romans 3. We have to have Romans 3 in our minds when we understand 1st and 2nd Corinthians 5. We have to have Romans 3 in our mind to understand John 6, where Jesus teaches extreme high Christology, theological things, limited atonement, total depravity. All of those things are taught. In, I mean, Calvin didn't come up with those. He was dead before that was, list was even done. But he didn't come up with these things. Reformed tradition didn't come up with these things. The confessions did not come up with these things. This is Pauline doctrine. This is the doctrine of Christ. This is God teaching of Himself, declaring that which He declares, that the Father sent Him to declare and say about Himself. And Jesus says, if you do not hear Me and listen to Me and obey Me by faith. What is He saying? What is the work of God? What is this obedience you speak of? That's a bad word. It's not a bad word. Trusting in Christ alone. The obedience of faith, this expression that we see throughout the Scripture, we must learn that it is to believe Christ is who He says He is and He has done what He says He has done and it is a finished work, it is accomplished. That's what faith alone stands for. That means there is nothing else that we could put our eye to. We do not avert our gaze. We do not come to the place where we say, I have my hand on Christ, but I also have my hand to the plow. Well, maybe that's a bad example. <laughs> Christ is the plow in that, in that example. But I keep looking back like Lot's wife. Well, maybe I'll put one foot over here in my morality and the other foot here. That's not good news, beloved. It's not good news. The gospel presupposes the sinfulness of man and all men have sinned. All men fall short of the glory of God. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, He created them with moral righteousness, with spiritual righteousness and the propensity of any human being, even in perfection from Adam, is always going to be to fall. It's always going to be to fall. But Christ is different. Christ came to this world of a virgin. He is not hooked and caught by the fleshliness and the fall of Adam, which God decreed in purpose before the world began. And Christ, even when His enemies were tearing the flesh from His body, had no disdain toward them. And He obeyed the law to love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that great? Presupposes sin... 
So let's look at verse 18. All this, all this that I've tried to summarize here, the work of Christ, is from God. See, this is the gospel. This is really the, the heartbeat of what's happening here. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. Who is the gospel author? God. Who is the gospel finisher? God. Nowhere do we see any, and we use the term synergistic gospel. We do not see anywhere in Scripture except for pretexts done in ignorance and maliciousness, I believe, where people are called by God to come to where He is and to accomplish something that He is offering. But the gospel is from God. God who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself. What's that mean? Some people think, well, I am reconciled to God because I am, I am coming to God. I am coming to this. I am doing these things. This isn't good news. Beloved, how good news? How many people get married in our culture today? And they stand before whatever conglomerate of people and witnesses and whatever ceremony they may have until death do us part, so help me God. That's a, in a nutshell what people say. And divorce, like, it's no big deal. Now, most people would say that at the day of their wedding, that the vow that they make to their spouse is irrevocable in the fullness of their sincerity. And they approach the gospel in the same ferociousness, with the same level of sincerity. Friends, if it is up to us to keep ourselves in the love of God, apart from the finished work of God, there is no hope in the world. Christ died for nothing. Christ's death is the good news that we then see God reconciling Himself to us. Because do we need God to be reconciled? Is it something God owes us? No, we're the ones that are the offender. We're the ones who are the sinner. We're the ones who are an affront to the nostrils of God's perfection and holiness. We are the ones who have run away. We are the ones who deserve His judgment. We are the ones. And there's nothing we can do to be reconciled. So God is the one who needs to, to see reconciliation. You see that? He needs to be satisfied. He needs to do something so that He can say you are forgiven. What is that? It's Christ. Through Christ, this gospel is of God. Christ reconciled us to Himself, God, and then gave us this ministry of reconciliation, this continual, perpetual preaching of this simple, silly, foolish message that God became a man and obeyed as a human being in all the fullness of the glory and the expectation of the righteousness of God. And yet He died a sinner's death, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So Christ, as we'll see there in verse 21, knew no sin but God made him to be sin. What does it mean to be reconciled? Verse 19. That is in Christ, the finished work of Christ, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, what it did, not that it happened. 
what it accomplished. God was reconciling the world to himself by not counting their sins against them. We are guilty, beloved. We are guilty and we deserve the wrath of God forever. But the good news is that God satisfied His wrath through Jesus Christ. And the work is done. Romans 8.1, and I'll talk about it tomorrow when I talk about church discipline. Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what that comes at the end of? Paul did not write the chapter numbers and the headings that are so eloquently displayed in our text. Romans 8.1 comes on the tail of Romans 7. It's the end. It's the therefore. Because all of this, now the outcome is this. Because I'm still a slave sold under sin. Well, Paul's talking about before Christ. No, he wasn't. Before Christ converted Paul, Paul was impeccable. Paul says to the Philippian church, a Jew of all Jews, circumcised on the eighth day, my parents named me Saul. I mean, that's, there's no better name to be a Jew. From the tribe of Benjamin, and so on, and so on, and so on. As according to the law, a Pharisee. You know who the Pharisees were? You know the history of the Pharisees? They were the reformers of Israel. They put Israel back on track of right worship. And then look where they came. I was blameless, Paul said, until the law came alive. And then I died. And I realized that what God was doing was something that only God could do. And that is that God is satisfied, not in the evil of my obedience to the law, it's never evil to obey the law. <laughs> yes, it is. Because we'll never obey it. You see the difference? Anyone who thinks they've obeyed God is a fool. We do not obey God. Now, we strive, we labor, we offer, we, we come, we, we, and even monergistically, the Spirit of God permits us in certain circumstances to put away certain things that control and, and, and take us into places that we should not go, transformation. But that's not, the, that's not the gospel. It's not the good news. God's not going to redeem this flesh. He's redeemed my soul. And this flesh is corrupted and corruptible until the day it stops and rots in the ground and becomes ash. And one day, beloved, because the work of redemption is finished, God will glorify me as Christ is glorified in the flesh. And then I will not know what it's like to sin any longer. And I cannot wait for the day. Why then must we mock the cross of Christ to say that then because Christ has satisfied the wrath of God and there is no condemnation, I must do more on my end to secure that. See? The gospel is good news because it is all of God and it is all about forgiveness and it is all finished. How is it finished? I mean, I've said it seven times already. It's worth repeating. Verse 21 be reconciled to God through Christ. 
What does that mean? That means that in all the perfection of Jesus and His humanity, in all of the righteousness, He is the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our sanctification. Christ is our wisdom. The righteousness of God. So in all the reality of the glory of the nature of the invisible God, God the Father, the perfection of His holiness is perfectly established and visible for us to see and behold in the living human body and life of Jesus Christ. So God's full glory is manifested for us, John 1, 1 John 1 and John 1, in the life of Jesus Christ. I want to see God, we look at how Jesus lived His life. I want to see the heart of God, we look at Jesus' heart. I want to see the face of God, we look at Jesus' face. I want to know the mind of God, we hear the words of Christ. As a human! Let that sink in. As God is in the flesh, so there is Christ. Then Christ, by God the Father, was put on the cross to suffer the wage of sinners. He paid for it. What do we see in Scripture? Christ paid for all that the Father gives to Him, gave to Him. There is an effectual work whereby Christ's perfect life was put to death and He did not deserve it, much less to be killed the way He was killed. That's what it says in verse 21. For our sake... He made Him. Who? God. God made Christ to be sin. Does that mean that Christ was guilty of sin? No. He would never have been raised from the dead. Christ, and all the sin of the elect, was put upon Him, and He paid the penalty through death. He died. He was despised. And even in that obedience, and judicially it's called passive obedience, submitting oneself to an authority, the government. In that obedience, Christ was perfectly righteous because He never violated the commandments of God even when those people were taking His life and defaming His name. He did not return revile with revile, but entrusted Himself to the One who judges rightly. God has poured out His judgment on Jesus Christ the righteous because Jesus Christ the righteous on the cross became the sin bearer. And then God takes the righteous one, reckons him a sinner, kills him, and then reckons us a law keeper. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And there's so much more. The tentacles, it's not an octopus. I don't know what kind of creature it would be if we were to draw it. But the tentacles of the grace of God go beyond what we could ever comprehend. When Paul prays that in Ephesians 3, now to him be all what? Glory in the church and in the world and everything to the end of age. Pray that he who can do more 
far abundantly than anything we could ask or think of. Friends, you and I can't comprehend just what God has done for Himself and the salvation of His people through the crushing of His Son so that we might be His righteousness. You see that? So whether I love you rightly today or whether I am snippy with you and troll you or defame you or hurt your feelings, if I am in Christ, there is no condemnation for me. And the proof that I am secure in Christ is that He has been raised from the dead. Because the work of judgment has been accomplished. The work of propitiation has been accomplished. The work of expiation has been accomplished. All of my guilt is gone. Now what does that motivate us to do? <laughs> Praise Him. Praise Him. You know what's part of our praise? Let me tell you what's not part of our praise. Anything to do with me. I have never worshipped the Lord with this spirit. Oh God, look at me. Look at who you've made me. Now, praise you, Lord, for you are great and mighty to save even a wicked, vile, and disgusting sinner like me. Oh, how precious is the blood of Christ that shed for me that I might be the righteousness of God. Nothing can take that away. It is a secure, absolute, perfect promise. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.21? I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. For nothing. If Christ died on the cross and He was not the bearer of our sin, beloved, if He did not pay the penalty and satisfy the wrath of God, then His death was unjust. Because there was no reason for Him to die. And if Christ's death was unjust, then God cannot take that title of Elohim, God, High One, Tsuntai, whatever language you want to speak it in. He is just a failed, miserable, cosmic fool. But He's not. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is all of God. The gospel is in the finished work of Christ. And the gospel is a promise of God through which we can be secure no matter what our life looks like. Let's pray. Lord, help us. There's a thousand things that I want to say. There are a thousand places I want to go just in the text we were in. But Lord, it is not what I want. It is not what I need to say. It is what you have already said. And Lord, how simple the gospel is, but how hard it is for those who have no spiritual eyes to see it. Lord, I pray that you would call your sheep to Christ and that you would help us to clarify the work that you've done to redeem us and to purchase us and to buy us and to satisfy your wrath against us. Lord, and the work that you will do until you return in the lives of your people. They are not to be confused. Lord, help us to see the clarity of the gospel. That it is done. And that the proof and the evidence of our hold, or the hold that you have on us is Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. You have set us apart in Christ, for you. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.